Man, awesome. So the book of Revelation, we're in chapter 2. If you guys uh, uh, are familiar with chapter 2, and we see that, that Jesus in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's addressing uh, seven churches of which are in Asia Minor. And each one of these churches, uh, Jesus has a different message for them. Interesting that out of these seven churches, five of them receive rebukes from the Lord. You know, but two of them receive nothing but just exhortation and encouragement. Uh, the, the, one of the churches that we're going to study this morning is one of those churches that just receives an encouragement from the Lord. Uh, Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church. You know, but the other ones, you know, he had some, some serious issues to address. And so Jesus is addressing seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. Not that there was only seven churches in Asia Minor. There were hundreds of, of home churches at that time, but again, going through just the symbolism through uh, the book of Revelation, you know, the, the number seven just being a symbolic of just God's perfection, his complete work. And so we see that even though he only addressed seven churches, uh, here we are some 2,000 years later, and we're, we're gleaning from, from what, he, what he wrote to those churches, and so God's perfect word, right, just throughout the ages. And so uh, last week we covered the, the loveless church, which is the church of, of Ephesus, and we saw that, that the Lord applauded them for their good deeds, their good works. They were busy. They were doing all kinds of events. You know, if we would translate it into our words, they were doing outreaches. They were evangelizing. You know, the church was, was active, right? They had a lot of stuff going on. And so the Lord commends them for all these good things that they're doing and, and, and all the, the activity that's going on there in the church. But then he says this. He says, but I have one thing against you. And it's like he was saying, this one thing that I have against you just outweighs everything you've ever done and, and everything you could do. He says, you left your first love. And he says, so even though you did all these things, you're doing all these things, you've left your first love talking about himself, you know, and we see that, that for the Lord, it's more to him, uh, what matters most to him is, is the motive behind our actions, we could come to church seven days a week, I could put on all the kinds of events, I could come here and teach, you know, Sundays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, whatever, but if the motive behind my service is not a love for God, then it means nothing to him, right, it's just, I'm just wasting my energy, and that's for all of us, right, and so it was a good encouragement, it was a good uh, uh, exhortation, it was a good word of correction to the church of Ephesus, and something that we could really glean from in our lives as well. But this morning, we're going to study now the church of Smyrna, and what the Lord has to say to the church of Smyrna, which is known as the persecuted church. Now, this is one of those churches that the Lord had nothing bad to say about them. You know, they were just right on, they were persevering, they were uh, uh, just going through tribulation, but yet they never folded under, under, under the pressure. And so verse 8 of, of Revelation chapter 2 says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, says, these things says, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Now, we covered last week how, uh, as the Lord is addressing these churches, you know, he's addressing the angels of these churches, right? Chapter 1, we see that, that, that Jesus, that John had a vision of Jesus. It says that he sees them with, uh, with eyes just burning with fire, right? Just talking about the brightness and the purity of, 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 of the Lord's eyes. And he says that he sees the Lord, and then in his right hand, he had seven stars. And then uh, there were seven golden lampstands behind him. Then the Lord himself gives uh, John the interpretation of that. He says, these seven golden lampstands represent these seven churches in Asia Minor. And the seven stars represent the seven messengers of these, of these churches. He uses the word angels. In the Greek, it's the word angelos, which means messenger. And so he's actually addressing uh, the overseers of those churches, what we would call the pastors of those churches. So I think it's amazing that the Lord was addressing the, the overseers of those churches, the leaders of those churches. And so here... In verse 8, now the Lord is addressing the pastor, the messenger, the leader, the overseer there at the church of Smyrna. And he says, right, he says, these things says the first and the last, speaking about himself, you know, who was dead and came to life. Now, the city of Smyrna, ancient Smyrna, was located in what is now modern day, uh, the city of Izmir in Turkey. 
That's a lot of activity going on over there right now. It, it, it was just a little north of Ephesus. Uh, the original city of Smyrna was actually destroyed in 627 B.C. Uh, Alexander the Great, when he came into power uh, under the, the Grecian Empire, he had plans to rebuild it. He died at a, a young old age of 33 years old. He never got to rebuild it, but you know he left the building plans and the whole, the whole uh, uh, idea for it. And so it was after they died that, that, it, that it got rebuilt. And so it was rebuilt after the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, became known as, as the glory of Asia Minor, you know, because of how great this city was. Uh, it had a lot of uh, uh, commerce going through it, a lot of transporting, a lot of importing, exporting. It was just this, this flourishing church, right? Uh, financially, it was just, man, it was, it was up there, right? It was, it was one of the uh, uh, richest churches there. I mean, cities there, right? There was a lot of activity, a lot of business. You know, it was the place to be. And so it was considered the glory of, of Asia Minor. And it was actually the birthplace of the ancient poet Homer. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, Homer's Iliad. You know, so, it, so Smyrna is actually the birthplace of the ancient poet uh, Homer. Um, the believers in Smyrna actually suffered great persecution and martyrdom. So even though there was a lot of commerce, a lot of economy, a lot of financial stability, uh, spiritually, it was... It wasn't the best place to be for, for a believer, you know, but there was a strong church there in Smyrna. The believers at Smyrna, the, the church of, of Smyrna, they suffered great persecution. Uh, many of them died for their faith in Jesus Christ, you know, not denying the Lord. Um, one of the most famous martyrs of Smyrna is, is a man by the name of, uh, of Polycarp, who was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. You know, so that's pretty amazing. Uh, and this guy, Polycarp, uh, he was bound and burned at the stake. And when his body wasn't, when his body wouldn't be, when his body wasn't devoured by the fire, they stabbed him to death. And so this guy died a brutal, you know, death for the Lord. But he went out, you know, not not uh, denying his Lord. And so again, this is all to say that the that the city of Smyrna you know, was 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 a was a hot place for, for Christians, right? It was it was a place that was it was hard to exercise your faith. But nonetheless, there was a strong church there in Smyrna. And so the Lord writes to him, and he says, "These things says the first and the last who was dead." And it came to life. And so we see that Jesus is about to address this suffering, persecuted church there in Smyrna. Now, I think it's fitting, you know, that the Lord would, would address himself as, you know, the one who was dead and now, and now is alive. You know, and I think it's fitting because uh, Jesus himself, you know, he would identify himself to them as the one who was dead. Right? And in that, he was identifying with, with their death through persecution. Because if you think about it, the Lord himself went through persecution and that led to his death. Right within his uh, three and a half years of ministry here on earth, uh, he was persecuted all those three and a half years. Everywhere he went, you know, the religious leaders were just looking to throw stones at him to just uh, catch catch him slipping, you know, trip up his words. Many times in the gospels, we read that the, that the that the Jews, the religious Jews, the religious leaders, they took up stones to kill him. You know, or they're going to throw him over a cliff. But you know, he would just kind of get away from the crowd, of course, because it wasn't God's time yet. And so, in reality, the Lord suffered persecution while he was here on earth. Right? And it eventually led to his death. And so I think it's just so fitting that the Lord would address himself to this specific church and says, says the one who was dead you know, and is alive. Saying, look, man, you guys are being martyred for your, for your, for your faith. You're being killed day and night for your faith. And, you know, and, and, and it's me who speaks to you. you know, I was killed, for, for, of course, for my, for my witness of the Father. Right? And so and this we see that, that the Lord is, is just he's, uh, he's relating you know, to the church. And, and I love that. I love that. Because the Lord will relate to us in our present circumstances, in our present sufferings, you know, in our present uh, uh, whatever it is that we're going through, our trials, our tribulation. And that's really what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that, that, that the Lord, you know, he took on humanity, uh, the Son of God, you know, he took on humanity 
uh, and he became susceptible to all the all the human uh, uh, defects, right? He was hungry. He got hungry. He got tired, right? He was, uh, I mean, man, he got angry when he saw the, the 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 religious leaders taking advantage of people and ripping them off in front of the temple, right? He when when he was beat, he felt every single one of those blows. It's not that just because he was he was God that he had, he didn't feel the, the the sting of the punches and the blows and the whips. He didn't. He did, right? And so. I love that the, that the Bible says that, that Jesus took on humanity so he, could, uh, so he could relate to our suffering, right? He was tempted just as we were tempted, but yet without sin. And so that's amazing because that speaks to us this morning. You know, whatever it is that we're going through, we think, man, who can I go to? Can't speak to them. They've never been to this. Man, who do I talk to? You know, I don't know of anybody who's been through what I'm going through. So, well, talk to the Lord, right? He could, he could uh, uh, empathize with our, with our sufferings, with our present uh, situation. And so he goes on to say in verse 9, he says, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. And then it says in parentheses, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. And verse 10 says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. But he says, this, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Amazing. Amazing. And so he tells them, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, right? And the, the, that, that word that, that the Lord uh, uses there in, in Greek when he says, I know, it's gnosko, the word gnosko, which means to know by experience, you know, to know by, by, by one's own experience. So he says, I know your tribulation, I know your works, I know your poverty. He's saying, I gnosko, I know by, by experience. And he's relating to like, this, this intimate knowledge of it. Right? And so we see that Jesus was aware of their condition there in Smyrna. Um, not one thing had happened to them. I mean, despite all their suffering, despite all these things that they went through. I mean, dude, Polycarp being burned at the stake, not dying, and then being stabbed to death while he's still on fire. You know, it's like, dude, and that's just one case. You know, it's like, man, these guys uh, went through all kinds of severe persecution. But not one thing that happened to the church there in Smyrna went unnoticed by the Lord. And I think that's amazing. You know, he says, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And so we see that Jesus was aware of the condition. You know, not one of those things slipped his mind. Now this phrase, I know, you know, he says, I know your works, I know this. This phrase, I know, is common in, in every one of the addresses to the seven churches. If you skip ahead and you just look at every one of the churches, you know, within probably the second or third sentence, you'll see the Lord saying, I know. And he'll add a thing like, I know your works, or I know your patience, or I know this and that. And so that phrase, I know, is common to the seven churches. Now, uh, me personally, I love that. I love that because... Here are seven different churches, seven different cultures, seven different needs and troubles in the churches, and yet Jesus knew intimately every single one of those needs and every single one of those situations, every single one of those experiences, and every single one of those churches, right? Now that speaks to us because, uh, man, as, as for us, you know, as Calvary Chapel City Terrace, but also as, as believers, just in the Lord, right? The Lord knows our needs. This is how he wrote to those seven churches, different areas, different situations, you know, he says, hey, I know, and then he fill in the blank, right? And so Jesus knows our needs as well. For us personally, like as a church, hey, man, the Lord knows we need parking. I'm like, Lord, we need parking. I pray about that like every day. I'm like, Lord, we need parking, right? We're trying to get the parking right at the school. We're like this, that, the other. And it's like the Lord's like, I know, I know. I'm working on it. I'm like, all right, Lord, hurry up. Hey, my time, my time, right? And so it's like the Lord knows our needs, right? But for us personally as well, he knows our physical needs. Right? I woke up this morning. I'm like, man, Lord, I'm tired. I'm tired, Lord. My body hurts. I'm tired. I'm sleepy. <laughs> right? And the Lord's like, I know. Let me refresh you. I'm like, all right, Lord. And he did. Right? He knows our physical needs. He knows our financial needs. He knows our ministry needs. 
He knows our personal needs, etc. And so that, that ministers to me, you know, as he says, hey, I know your works, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. He, he talks to all the churches, he says, I know this, this, that, and the other about you. And, and just that, that, that intimate knowledge of, that, that God has of us, is just, I mean, that alone, we could spend an hour just talking about that, of, of God's intimate knowledge of, of humans, of us, of his kids. And, and I love that he doesn't see us as like cookie-cutter kids, right? They're like, all right, they're just all in one bunch, all the same. No, but he's, he's, he's intimately involved in, in our personal situation, whatever it is that we're going through. You know, whatever it is that you're going through is not too insignificant for the Lord. And I mean, I, I'm guilty sometimes I do that. You know, I'm praying. I'm like, ah, well, I won't mention this because God's too busy dealing with uh, world hunger or something else, something crazy, what's going on in, 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 uh, in, in Ukraine right now to, to bother with my little petition, right? But no, the Lord is intimately, uh, uh, he's intimately interested, you know, in, in our personal needs, right? He knows them and he wants us to just hey, bring them up before him, right? And so that, that should give us peace. And so he tells them, I know your works, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. Now, the church in, in Smyrna was a faithful church. They were hardcore. Right? They were dying for the faith without neglecting the Lord. They were, they were hardcore. It was said by uh, William Barclay. I'm going to read a quote by, by William Barclay, who's, a, who's a, an old um, Bible commentator. He says, for a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. He says, but in Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter the Christian church was literally to take his life in his own hands. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. That's heavy. In Smyrna, the, cha- the, the, the church was a place for heroes. Because they knew, man, as soon as they go, they're, 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 they go in there, as soon as they identify with Christ, hey, man, they, they got a target on their back. Right? And so, uh, we see that, that uh, although Smyrna was actually one of the wealthiest city and cities in Asia Minor, uh, the Christians specifically were, were considered impoverished. Right? It's not because they weren't good at it. It wasn't because they're lazy, they didn't go to work, or because they didn't own business or anything like that. Right? But really, uh, they were the target of thieves. Just because they were Christians, they were the, the target of thieves, they were the target of violence, they were the target of, of persecution. And so it, it, it hindered them from, from really you know, uh, owning anything. Um, often they were, just, they were robbed just because of their faith in Christ. You know, and I just imagine that. I mean, imagine us going to the grocery store and filling up, you know, I've, all right, I already had a rough week and I only made a certain amount of, of, of money this week. And what I have is, all right, this, what I have is going to get my family through the week. I go to Walmart, buy some groceries. And as I'm walking to my car, man, I get, I get jumped and I get beat up and they take my groceries and they take whatever I have in my pocket. That was the Church of Smyrna. You know, they were targeted for the faith, specifically robbed, you know, just because just of, of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were denied jobs because they refused to renounce the name of Christ, right? But notice what Jesus says to them. The house is there in parentheses. He says, you're in poverty, but you're really rich. You're in poverty, but you're really rich. Now, maybe they weren't wealthy financially, right? But spiritually, they were rich and had more than they could ask for. Spiritually, man, they were wealthy. They were trillionaires, right? Spiritually speaking. Now, with that, you know, the Bible tells us that, that true wealth, true wealth is found in spiritual contentment. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul told Timothy there in 1 Timothy 6, 6. It says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. It says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it, it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Right? I love that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In, in a world, in such a fast-paced world, especially living in California, such a fast-paced uh, a state, right? It's, it's, it's easy to just get caught up in the, in the rat race, get caught up in the hustle, you know, use any spare time you have to, you know, try to make any money on the, on the, on the side. Right? I mean, dude, I'm guilty of this. I've been telling some of the brothers, I've been telling my wife that, 
you know, recently I came to terms and I told God, my like, Lord, I don't want to do any more side work. Right? For you guys don't know, I'm an electrician, but I do a lot of side work. But it's like, man, nowadays, I don't even care, man. I don't want to take on any more work. I just want to focus on, on, on being a diligent student of the word so I can be a diligent teacher. I want to focus on my relationship, on my relationship with the Lord and just that intimacy. I want to grow it. I want to focus on my, on my prayer time. And I want to focus on my relationship with my wife. And that's it. My Lord, I don't want to take on any more, any more calls. But people keep on calling. You know? It's like I, get, I kept on getting tempted. <laughs> I did a job last week. I'm like, oh, man. I said I wasn't going to do any more, any more work, and I did one last week. And like, all right, well, you know, I failed that test. For sure, no, no more work now. <laughs> it's convicted me. You know, and, and, and really, that's what the Bible tells us. That, hey, just godliness with contentment, that's great gain. Right? And man, if I could just walk with the Lord, seek Jesus, you know, just be, be, be in tune with it, with his spirit, what his spirit is, is leading me to do, to say. If I could just have a fruitful time in the word and, and, and just be content. Cool, that's cool. I trust God for my provision. Right? God, up until this point, he's never left us hungry. He's never left us you know, uh, without a roof over our, over our head. He's never left us in, in want or, or, or in need. So why would he do it now, right? And so we see that sometimes in our pursuit for financial stability, we trade our spiritual peace of mind when we compromise our walks with the Lord. Right? I used to know a brother that was doing really, really good with the Lord. And he started off just on fire, on fire. At the time, he wasn't working, you know, so he had nothing, he had all the time in the world to just seek the Lord. Right, I'd be at work, I'd be blowing up my phone at work. Hey, this is that and the other. I'm like, hey, trip. I when I get off, at the time I wasn't married yet, so I had a lot of free time too. I'd go, you know, see him after work. We'd, you know, we'd hang out all day and up until you know late night, just studying the word, talking about Jesus, you know, going out to evangelize. Next day, same thing. I was it was like seven days a week, you know. And eventually, you know, he got a job. He got a, a financially stable, and he just got caught up in the rat race. And boom, you know, that led him to just uh, uh, backsliding. You know, because instead of, of his focus being on the Lord for his provision, now his focus became on just, hey, man, my employer, this, that, the other, making money, and, and he can neglect his walk with the Lord. But we see that that, that, that can happen to us sometimes, you know, where we're just, man, chasing the dollar, you know, the mighty dollar, and, and, and we neglect our relationship with the Lord, and it affects us in a way. You know, whether we see it or not, you know, it's going to have an effect on us. But with that being said, I mean, being wealthy is not a sin, right? I mean, we know that, that God's I mean, God's will isn't that, that a Christian shouldn't be wealthy, a, sh- a Christian shouldn't own businesses. I mean, I think us as Christians, we should be the most diligent workers. We should be the most diligent business people, right? We should be the most honest ones as well, right? And so we see that, that it's not a sin for us to be wealthy as Christians. Sometimes we think that I can't have a lot of money because, you know, I'm doing bad or it's a sin or God's going to look down on me. He's going to, you know, strike me down and make me lose my wallet or something like that, right? But that's not the Lord, that's not the Lord. You know, if the Lord wants us to, to, to prosper in a business, he's going to do it, especially if we run that business with integrity, right, and honor him with it. But it becomes sinful when, when your desire for riches outweighs your desire for God. That's when it becomes a sin, when your desire for riches outweighs your desire for God. And this is what the Lord told the, told the disciples there in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. You're probably familiar with this verse. He says, therefore, hey, don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink or, man, what are we going to wear? He says, for after all these things, the Gentiles seek. Meaning, hey man, those people who, who don't know God as their father, that's what they worry about. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? What am I going to, where's my money going to come from? He says, that's what the Gentiles you know, worry about. That's what those, those who don't have God as their father worry about. He says, uh, says for all, after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He says, therefore, he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. He says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love that whole chapter. If you read that whole, that whole chapter, Matthew chapter 6, 
you know, there's a, I think further down or, or, or before it, he says, uh, look at the little birds, man. <laughs> he says, you think they wake up in the morning and think, all right, man, how are we going to survive today? I wonder if we're going to eat today. Dude, and, and that trips me out because the birds, we don't think about that. They wake up and they know, all right, man, we're going to eat today. We're going to feed our, 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 our little bird babies and, you know, we're going to make a nest and we're going to survive. And I think, man, like <laughs> a little bird, and that's what Jesus says, hey, man, if a little bird who has no significance, he's here one day, he's gone the next, you know, can wake up and just trust God for his provision, then, then what are we tripping on? Knowing that we have God as our father, as our provider, as our shield, as our fortress, as, as our refuge, as our strength, as all, as all these things, right? But just, man, our human, our human understanding, our human just limitations just get in the way sometimes. And so he goes on to tell them, he says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. So along with his knowledge of, of their works, along with his knowledge of, of their walks, as long as, as, along with, their, with his knowledge of, of what they're going through, he says, I also know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. That's heavy. That's heavy. There's no faking with the Lord, right? He sees right through us. And so he's, he's speaking uh, specifically about the Jews. He says, I know their blasphemy, you know, they're Jews, and they're, and they're part of the synagogue of Satan. Now, these were non-Christian Jews in Smyrna. So along with Gentiles, along with uh, Romans, along with, 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 uh, with people who were you know, non-Jewish, they're, they're in Smyrna, who were persecuting the church. There was also a group of, 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 of uh, Orthodox Jews, religious Jews, who were also adding to the persecution of the church. So these guys had everything against them. Now keep in mind that the church in Smyrna was made up of all kinds of different individuals. Gentiles, you know, Jews you know, who became Christians, all kinds of, all kinds of people. And so... There was a group of Jews there in the city of Smyrna who just added on to the persecution. You know, and whenever they could, they would come down on the church. Why? Because they were confessing Jesus as a Messiah. They were confessing Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And it's like uh, Jesus was saying, you know, say, hey, man, they think they're religious unto God, but, they really think that, but they're really the synagogue of Satan because they're doing Satan's will, which is persecute the church. Because he's saying, you know, he says, hey, it's a synagogue of Satan. So when he says synagogue, that's, that's specific to the Jews. And so he's, he's addressing the Jews. Now, the Jews and their religion, you know, they're, they're doing this thing in their own zealousness, thinking, man, we're worshiping God, we're religious, we're holy, and so we're killing these Christians. And he says, man, you guys aren't the, aren't the religion of God, you're not the synagogue of God, you're the, you're the synagogue of Satan, because you're doing the will of Satan, you know, which is to persecute my, my, my church, right? And so we see that, that the scripture tells that just because a person is a Jew, specifically, just because a person is a Jew does not mean that they're automatically saved. Right? I was having a conversation with a coworker one time, and um, he's very, you know, pro-Israel, and of course we are too, man. We, 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 we acknowledge Israel, we know that it's God's chosen people, right? But he was very like, no, no, like, they could do no wrong in God's eyes, you know, and even if, if they die just because uh, they're Jews, you know, they're automatically saved. And that's actually wrong theology, you know, the Bible teaches us that Paul says to himself, he says, hey man, with God, there's no partiality when it comes to salvation. He says, it's not about Romans, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, he says, but it's all about Jesus. You know, you could be whatever ethnicity you are, and you're not going to be saved because of, a, of an ethnicity or because of a, you know, a, a title over your name. You know, we're going to be saved because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Not one of the ways, not one of the truths, not one of the life. He said, nobody gets to the Father except through me. That's it. That covers all religions, right? He said, nobody gets to the Father except through me, right? And so... He's saying, man, they think they're, they're religious unto God, but really they're the synagogue of Satan. And so only a real relationship with the one true God through Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, is what saves. 
Now, these guys were probably thinking much like Paul before he, before he had an encounter with the Lord, that they were doing God's will, God's work, but in reality, they were deceived, right? And likewise, you know, not, not just with these Jews, but likewise, you know, just because someone is religious, you know, I say that in, 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 in a quotation, just because someone is religious, you know, doesn't mean that they are saved and have a relationship with Jesus. There's a difference. Religion is not the same as salvation. Religion is not the same as relationship. But oftentimes, we mix the two together. We think, all right, just because I go to church, I'm saved. For sure, I'm going to heaven. Just because I do X amount of things, just because I give my tithes, just because I serve once a week, just because I whatever, whatever you replace, you know, as, and, and, and place your security of salvation in, you know, whatever you, 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 you place your security of eternal salvation in that is not Jesus Christ, you know, is a false hope, right? And so religion does not save. And a lot of people, you know, that we, we do a lot of religious things and religious acts, and we're very religious. And I mean religious, I, when, I, I, when I say religious, I mean like um, the definition of religion, you know, is, is literally man doing things to please God. I'll give you guys an example, and I'm only going to say this because I don't think he's ever going to hear this Bible study. But, you know, I just started a new job, and one of my foremen is there. Um, I was really excited when I got there because, you know, of course, I, I'm tatted, so I look at people's tattoos. And so I see he has, like, the Calvary right here, you know, three crosses. He, uh, he's got a scripture right here. He's got all kinds of stuff. You know, he, I haven't seen his sleeves because he's always wearing a sweater. But he's got a lot of Christian tattoos, you know. So I, when I first met him, I, I thought, cool, man, he's a brother in the Lord. And, um, and I, maybe, maybe he is a brother in the Lord, you know, but I don't know. But I mean, I'm, like, working with him, and, man, this guy, like, I've never heard anybody just blaspheme the name of God like he does. It's like every, you know, few minutes, you know, Jesus is in Christ. Jesus is in Christ. And I'm just like, dude. And, and coming from someone who has, you know, the Calvary tatted on him and all these things, and just, he says, says some blasphemous things. And, and uh, I, so at first I was thinking, all right, maybe he, he was walking with the Lord at one point, and he backslid. That's why he's got all these tattoos, and he just couldn't cover them up. But one day I walked into his office, and he was, uh, he was, he was listening to worship. And I walked in there, and I, as soon as I walked in there to ask him a question, he turned it down real quick. <laughs> and uh, I'm talking to him, and he's just like, so you tell he's just really nervous, you know, because... He was probably embarrassed, you know, that, that he had the, 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 the worship music in the background. I mean, he, I don't know if he knows I'm a Christian or not. But, you know, he was probably felt embarrassed, like, oh, man, he's listening to us. He's, he was embarrassed of Christ, right? If, if you're not ashamed of the gospel, if you're not ashamed of Jesus, then, dude, I would have bumped it even harder as soon as I, I walked in, right? But he was. He was. And so I say that to say this, you know, that, that, that maybe him in his mind, you know, he's, he's, he has, like, this religious type of mind thinking, like, oh, man, well, look, I got the marks, I got the whatever, I got the T-shirts. I got the bio on my Instagram. I'm saved. But that's religiosity. You know, that's not salvation. You know, religiosity is, is separate from salvation. Right? And we see that religion does not save. But the only thing that saves us, the only thing that saves our souls is a true relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. That's it. And that's even better, you know, because faith happens here. Faith happens here. Right? I don't have to do all kinds of crazy things in order to be saved. I just got to believe. That's what the Bible says. Right? Because whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Like, all right, cool, Lord. That's it, belief. Right? We'll make it hard. And then we see that Jesus, uh, after all this, you know, he encourages them. And so his encouragement to them is, do not fear. I love that. After all this, he says, hey, but don't fear. Right? He says, don't fear any of those things which, which you're about to go through. Now, that's interesting. Again, there in verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer not what you're about to go through, not what you're about to, you know, what's about to happen. But he says specifically, suffer. Don't fear any of those things that you're going to suffer. And he says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have 
tribulation 10 days. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, that's, it kind of seems like a, like a contradiction, like an oxymoron. He says, don't fear. The devil's going to throw you into prison. I'm like, oh, man. And I would hear that. The first thing I'll do is kind of get scared. Right? But he says, don't fear. By the way, the devil's going to throw you into prison. You're going to suffer persecution and all these things. Like, whoa, that's heavy. Right? But he says, don't fear any of these things that you're about to go through. Now, interesting that Jesus didn't tell them. He didn't say, uh, hey, don't worry. Don't fear. I'm going to deliver you from all these things. I'm going to put a little shield of protection around you. I'm going to cover you in bubble wrap, and you're not going to feel anything. Right? He didn't say that to them. He said, Instead, he warns them of things to come. He says, the devil is going to throw some of you guys in prison. He says, your faith is going to be tested. Uh, he says, uh, but be faithful unto death. You're going to suffer persecution, but be faithful unto death. And that's his encouragement to them. He says, hey, you're going to go through all these things, but be faithful unto death. Now, it's not that, that Satan himself was going to show up you know, and take up a human form and, and toss these guys into prison, but it's that Satan was going to inspire you know, he's going to be the, he was going to be the inspiration behind all the persecution that the church was experiencing. And we've seen that throughout the ages, right? I mean, all throughout the first century, I mean, we see how, how, how the enemy, uh, it seems like he, he, I mean, a lot of these guys that, that, that we read about that persecuted the church, it seemed like they were demonically possessed. You know, King Herod, who was, a, who was the king when Jesus was born, if you remember, um, that guy was like, like bloodthirsty, man. Uh, it, was, it was said of King Herod that it's, it's safer to be one of King Herod's pigs and to be one of his brothers or one of his kids. Because this guy was just so, you know, out there that he would, he would like, any, any little ounce of, uh, of, of like, um, uh, of, of opposition that he would feel, you know, he would have the, have the person killed. If he thought his, his son was going to, you know, take over the throne, boom, he had him killed. If he thought his, one of his family members was going to overthrow him, boom, he'd have, he'd have him killed. Interesting that then the Gospel of Luca tells us that, that, that when, that when the, the, the wise men came, the shepherds came, and they said, hey, we're following the star because the king of the Jews is born. What did he do? He called for all the babies under two years old to be killed. That's demonic. Dude, tell me that's not demonic, right? When we, when we hear about all things that, that Hitler did in order to, to kill all the Jews, dude, that's demonic, right? When we think about all, this, all the persecution that's going on around the world, some of the just the heavy things that are, that are happening to Christians specifically for their faith, that's demonically inspired. And so Jesus says, hey, Satan is going to throw you into prison. So what he's saying is, like, look, man, Satan's going to inspire people uh, to just hate you and, and to cause you to be thrown into prison as a result of that hate. Not for you, but for me, right? And so he goes on to tell him, uh, he goes on to say, oh, again, just, hey, he says, be faithful unto death. He doesn't say, hey, I'm not, I'm going to, he, he could have spared the life he wanted to, right? He, he did it many times for the people, but instead he tells them, just be faithful unto death, right? And so we see that for us, for any Christian, we see that, 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 being a Christian does not mean we are exempt from suffering. And, you know, there's a false gospel out there that's being, that's being uh, spewed from the pulpit that's, that, that's, hey, man, come to Jesus and all your worries are going to go away. They're going to disappear. You're going to live on a unicorn with rainbows and sprinkles for the rest of your walk with the Lord. And it's not true, right? Being a Christian does not make us exempt from suffering. If anything, you know, we're promised suffering. We are. That's one of those things you don't read in those 100 promises or 365 promises a day type of thing. You, you never find the, the promise of suffering, the promise of persecution. But Jesus spoke about it. There in John 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Why? He says, because in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. So he didn't say, hey man, you're going to go through tribulation. 
Good luck with that. <laughs> no, he said, you're going to go through tribulation, you're going to go through hard things, but, but you know what? But, but, but take comfort in this, that I've overcome the world. Right? And so if you're a Christian living in a way that desires to please God, if you're a Christian living in a way that just desires to please God with your life, not perfect, but just you know, desiring to please God, and suffering hard times, be encouraged. You should be encouraged. Why? Because you're where you need to be. If you're a Christian desiring to, to please God, uh, desiring to just walk after the Lord you know, and walk after holiness, and you're going through hard times, be encouraged because you're where you need to be. All right? That's what the Lord promises. I'm like, all right, man. I feel like I'm in a good place. All right, Lord. But sometimes we could look at the suffering. We could look at the things that go wrong as like God's closed door. We think, oh, man, God's not with you. Or, man, I messed up. Or, man, I don't know. Maybe my faith is weak right? because I'm going through persecution or because I'm going through suffering. No. If you're desiring to, 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 to serve the Lord, to walk after him, you're going to go through things. Um, I, got, I got a verse in my head, but it just, it just vaguely there. Uh, oh, it says, I think it was Paul who said, all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Right? Interesting that that's actually what, what James tells us as well. And we see that God uses those difficulties, those difficult times in our lives to refine our faith. They're not just in vain. Not, he's not going to just let us go through hard times and, all right, man, that's it. You know, you're just another bruise, another, you know, another notch on the belt. No, but God has a purpose in all these things, right? And it's to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith, and to refine us. James tells us there in James 1, 2, he says, Hey, my brother, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So when you're in the tribulation, when you're in the trial, your faith is being tested, and, and if you allow the Lord to test your faith, you know, and, and, and go through it, he says, it's going to produce something in you. It's going to produce patience. He says, but let patience have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. And so uh, Paul actually tells us something too in Romans 5.4. He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character produces hope. All right? And so we see that the things that we go through in our lives, hey man, God has a purpose for us, right? If we allow him to have his purpose in it. And so many times people tap out, like right in the middle of a trial or right in the middle of a suffering or right in the middle of a tribulation, or you're going into it, you feel any slight discomfort, oh, that's it, or I'm out, I'm out, that's it, can't take it, right? And you miss out on what God has for you through that, through that refining process. And, and that refining process sometimes is painful, right? It might be something physically, it might be something spiritual, it might be something, you know, maybe emotional that the Lord is just desiring to refine in you. And, and, I mean, oftentimes, whenever I felt like God was doing this to me, you know, it's the times where I felt closest to the Lord, it's like a surgeon, man. When you have an open wound, I mean, when you have an open wound, that's when the surgeon can do his deepest work, right? You got a broken bone, you got a, you know, some kind of nerve or something, and you, you got to break the flesh in order to get to it. And not just the flesh, but he's got to break the skin, he's got to go through the muscle tissue, he's got to go through all the tendons, open it up a little bit, get under the bone. And so when the, when the wound is fresh and open, it's when, the, it's when the surgeon can have its deepest work. And so with the Lord, right? When we're going through these sufferings, through these trials, through these tribulations, it's when the Lord could have his... His deepest work in us. Paul actually wrote, I believe in Philippians, where it says that, that, that we could draw closer to the Lord through his suffering. He says, that I may know the power of Christ, know the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Interesting that, that Paul says that there, is, that there is a degree that we could know the Lord you know, through suffering. There's a, there's a special, specific type of degree that we could come to know, to know Jesus by through our suffering. That's heavy, and it's only through our suffering. That's heavy, right? And 
So again, we see a lot of people just tap out. They're not willing to go through it, trust the Lord through it. I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it's rough stuff, right? But because their faith never gets the chance to be refined, they live in a watered-down Christian life. Now, I was preparing for my study. I'm, you know, reading this. And I, I got to take a pause and just kind of ask myself stuff. I'm like, all right. I start thinking, what's it going to take for me 